Hello and welcome to Cape in Conversation, a Vintage Books podcast mini-series which celebrates a hundred years of the vintage imprint Jonathan Cape by bringing together some of Cape's finest writers. Today we'll be talking with novelist Julian Barnes and artist Celia Paul. I'm Shahida Bari, a critic, academic and broadcaster and a Cape author too. I'm your host for this podcast series as we talk with writers from across the range of generations and genres published by Cape. If you've been following this series, you'll have heard wonderful conversations between novelists Rachel Kushner and Otessa Moshfeg, Salman Rushdie and Katie Kitamura, and Anne Anwright and Alison Beckdale. Today we're talking with a novelist with an eye for painting and a painter turned memoirist. Julian Barnes is the author of 13 novels, including The Sense of an Ending, which won the 2011 Man Booker Prize for Fiction. He's also written numerous essay collections, short stories and books of non-fiction, including Keeping an Eye Open, a series of patient meditations on artists ranging from Jericho to Magritte. His book, The Man in the Red Coat, which won the Duff Cooper Prize in 2019, tells the story of Samuel Jean de Pozzi, celebrated 19th century surgeon, and was inspired by John Singer Sargent's portrait of 1881. Julian was awarded the Legion d'Honneur in 2017. His novel, Elizabeth Finch, will be published in April next year. Celia Paul is widely regarded as one of the most significant painters working in Britain today. Her major solo exhibitions include Celia Paul, curated by Hilton Owls at Yale Centre for British Art in 2018, and The Huntington in 2019, and Gwen John and Celia Paul in Chichester 2012. We'll talk more about her affinity with John a little later. Celia's paintings have featured in the Tate's All Too Human group exhibition of 2018, and they appear in collections at the British Museum, the National Portrait Gallery, the V&A and the Met in New York. Her 2019 memoir, Self Portrait, reflects on her relationship with Lucian Freud and her life as an artist. Her next book, Letters to Gwen John, an imagined correspondence with the artist, will be published in 2022. Hello Celia and Julian. Hello. Thank you for saying hello. It's nice to have you here. To my delight, we're meeting in person for the first time in this podcast series, so it's lovely to speak to you both in the flesh. And we're meeting at the Victoria Miro Gallery, who represent you, Celia, where, and where you've shown work. Uh, so thank you for having us. I want to ask about your spaces. Largely, Celia, because in your, in your book, your studio in Bloomsbury features very strikingly in your memoir, Self-Portrait. And I think you've had that space for nearly 40 years. Yes, I think that's right. For people who haven't read the book, what does that space look like? And... And has it had an influence on the work that you've made? Well, it, it's difficult to tell. I've been there since 1982, and the room I use as my studio um, faces onto the forecourt of the British Museum. Um, but I have the blinds down because um, it would be very distracting to see all that's going on in the British Museum. And... Um, over the years, um, a kind of there's a kind of silence has has built up in that particular room, and um, most particularly in the space where my sitters have always sat, um, and I'm very interested in the way that spaces do actually um, become saturated with the aura of 
the events that happen in the room. Um, as you know, Great Russell Street is an incredibly busy street, um, but somehow, I mean, I'm high up, um, and the quietness of the space isn't really interrupted by the sounds of traffic. I mean, I'm, I, at the moment, I'm being quite distracted by the outside sound because there's an accordion player um, <laughs> just outside the main gates of the museum who plays um, music from the theme, you know, the theme music for The Godfather <laughs> over and over and over and over again. And, um, and because I've been doing paintings very much to do with memory recently rather than having sitters, the fact that there's, the music is sort of nostalgic has, yeah. has has made it quite exasperating as well because I want to have my own nostalgia but not imposed on me from outside. What a pest. Um, Gillian, I think it's only fair that you tell us about the space in which you work. Do you have a particular desk? A oh, particular yes. Oh, yes. I have a particular desk, a particular room, and I've been in it uh, one year fewer than you have. Mm. I bought a house in 1983. I immediately identify the room I want. It's a first floor room that faces the street, which is very quiet. And it has two prunus trees, which gradually grow up each year so that you can't see the houses opposite. Um, I painted it a sort of bright Chinese yellow, which is extremely satisfying. I know writers are meant to have want sort of calming surroundings, but it's wonderful to go into a room where there is sunlight, even if it's snowing outside, you know, it's, it cheers me up. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it cheers me up to get into my study full stop, but that, that adds to it. And then I used to have a desk, a small desk and a table at right angles to one another. Um, and then in some moment of vanity, I decided to have a, a, a desk built and it's, it's, it's black and it's slightly sloping on the outsides. And first of all, it covered the area of the desk and the table. And then I needed more space when I had a computer. So it's now almost a sort of U shape (laughs) around me. And um, I had a great friend called Brian Moore, who's an Irish novelist. Um, And he once borrowed a house and he said to someone, he didn't say it to me, he was a a delightfully malicious man. He said, it's like like sitting at a newsreader's desk. you, you expect to turn to the left and there will be the weather girl. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is quite big and very un, unmovable as well. It's got lots of... It's got my computer, it's got my electric typewriter, which I work on mainly, and it's got space to make a mess. I mean, I am, I'm, I'm dirty desk most of the time, and then, then I turn into clean desk when I, I you know, haven't got anything else. <laughs> We've started talking about your practice, Celia, so perhaps... We can press on with that a little bit. I want to ask you about autobiography, um, because in your book you insist startlingly, I think, that you're not a portrait painter, although for many people you you would seem to be someone who's often painted people. You say instead, if anything, I have always been an autobiographer and a chronicler of my life. What does that mean? Well, I think it's probably what most artists would say, that all works of art are actually autobiographical and in a way it's a sort of um, sign of the truth of an image the more autobiographical it is. 
I've been thinking a lot about the kind of painter I am. Um, there's an exhibition on at the moment at the Haywood about painting now. And I know I'm, I'm not um, a painter in that sense. Um, I don't think my painting is gestural in that sense. Um, the, I absolutely love the late work of de Kooning, um, but as most people know, in his last years he had dementia. Um, but the, the work, those gestures that he made, this, they're deeply spiritual, mystical works. And I know that if I got dementia, I wouldn't be able to paint. I think um, my painting comes much more from ideas. And um, I, I know that Sickert said, um, I'm a literary painter, thank goodness, like all decent painters. And I notice in your book that you quote Balzac as saying I'm a literary painter <laughs> and so I think there's yes. a kind of um, there are, uh, and I think in a way that's part of my deep connection to Lucien Freud always is that I mean I know David Sylvester kind of dismissed Lucien Freud saying he wasn't a painter and I think hinting that he should have been a writer. Um, uh, because, so yeah, I know. And I think he was thinking along the terms of this painting show at the moment to do with gestural art rather than ideas art. Lucy Freud, correct me if I'm wrong, he didn't write very much, did he? No, he didn't. Uh, but he, he might, might have been a writer. <laughs> it's incredibly preposterous. Yes, yeah. yes. I, I think he wrote one piece, was persuaded to write one piece at the start of his career, and then the editor of the Tatler, I think it was, Geordie Gregg, who wrote a short book about him, uh, persuaded him to add a hundred words and then <laughs> reprinted them as a new piece by Lucy Freud. So um, he hasn't got a track record for that. Yes. Yeah. But going back to your, I think it's interesting, you, imme you immediately and correctly deny that you're, you painted portraits, you, you mm. paint pictures of people, yes. which is a different thing. Very different. Portraits seems to imply, you know, a portraitist and, and a sort of sausage machine mm. output of yeah. portraits. Um, Yes, and that, that the the gestural mm. term that that seems to me very interesting because, and and the the not so obviously gestural biography that a work might be seems very provocative and interesting to me. And I, I want to ask you, Julian, about this because in keeping an eye open, I think that you have a apprehension about the place of biography in our reading of painting that. It can be obtrusive, I think you're, you seem to be suggesting. Uh, yes, I'm very, I'm very iffy about biography, generally, um, even though I enjoy it. Um, and, and if I read a book which impresses me, I want to know something about the writer. This is sort of, it seems a normal human response, yet at the same time, um, it would be ideal if, when you wrote a book, no one knew anything about you. Um, there was no publicity for it. 
um, it produced this, this object which was available and by word of mouth uh, somehow news got around and people bought it. Whereas, um, you know, I've, I've recently finished a book and already there's a sort of front flat description of it and I feel it's already been pushed into a, a little box like that. Um, and, and, and equally I would love to all, all readers to read my books naively. Um, not to know anything about the book, just open it up front for the first page and, and you read that and you think, oh, okay, well, I don't know why, I don't know where, but I'll find out. Whereas, there are people, and I once, I once said to my publisher, um, they said, we will need some front flap copy and maybe you'd like to write it. And I said, well, what about, this is Julian Barnes's 12th book or 12th novel. <laughs> and they said, oh no, we can't do that. Um, and I suppose it would have looked cheeky, but um, as the, I do, I suppose it's the other side of it is that a lot of readers like to know in advance what they're going to be reading about, even if it's a novel. Um, so there's nothing, there's nothing to the point where, you know, art and commerce meet, there's nothing that can be done about it. But I, I want us to talk a little bit about the relationship between language and painting. Um, because Celia, self-portrait is punctuated by these incredibly fragile poems, which I think that you, you've written throughout your life. Um, and that, you say in self-portrait that poetry comes closest to the language of painting. What do you mean by that? Um, well, as I say in the introduction to the book, um, when I was a young woman, I kept a, a diary, not every day, but... In it, I kind of poured out my emotions, and it, it was a very turbulent time because I was going out with Lucian. And, um, but in between the passages of very highly charged prose, I, I wrote some poems. I don't think they're very good poems, um, but it what the poems did was to give a kind of bird's eye view of my feelings and to kind of organise them in a different way to the prose which and um, I think for painting um, you need a bird's eye view in some to some degree um, and I feel maybe with writing it's it's more ground level, certainly in my experience, writing prose anyway. But yeah. Julie, what about for you? Because that, that project of rendering painting in language is, is your endeavour too in some yes. way. Yes. But I sense in, in your work an apprehension about how far that might be helpful or, or possible. I, I wonder though if you think there are, for, for both of you, if there are particular writers or critics who come close to being helpful or making that possible, that, that rendering of, of painting in language? I feel, when I write about art, that it's... Uh, I feel apprehensive and I also feel disobedient. <laughs> um, and for instance, two of the, the artists I, 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 I most admire, uh, Brock um, and Dugger, um, Dugger said, you look at a painting and you say, humph, hey, ha, <laughs> and that's all there is to be said about it. And Brock said, the best way of looking at a picture is in total silence. And I revere both of them, 
And at the same time, I think, well, that's all right for you because you're painters who understand exactly what's in front of you. So you only have to say, I'm very hard. It's done. <laughs> but um, the, the rest of us, you know, we are uh, kind of incorrigibly talkative. And a painting or work of art is mute. And so somehow we have to, we have to fill, fill, fill the space. Um, and even if you succeed in looking at a painting without putting into words what you think about it to someone who you've gone with, pretty soon you do. Um, uh, and there's an American academic who teaches at Harvard and she gives her first year students a task which is to go to the nearest gallery and to look at one painting for three hours. She says, I know it's intolerable, <laughs> but, and I know you'll, you'll just phase out, you'll want to look at your iPhone. Stay in front of it for three hours, and different things happen in the course of that. Um, which is, I want to try that, but I, you know, three hours, you have to see the whole show in three hours, usually, so it's quite hard. Mm. Um, There's a thought experiment in, in keeping an eye open, where, where you ask that question, how long yes. should one spend in front of a painting? Yes, yeah, yes. Well, it's kind of, how long do we spend in, t- in front of a painting? And if you, unfortunately, I think the, the blockbuster show is now beginning to go out, but there was a big fashion for it over about 20 or 30 years, partly when it was easier to borrow paintings, and they move around the world all the time. And so you'd, you'd book your ticket for a, a work by a great master with maybe 300 items in it, and you came out after, well, I think my, my limit for looking properly at pictures is about an hour, and then I can do another half hour on the remaining tank full of energy, so you think, well, um, that's like 20 seconds a picture, mm-hmm. or something like that. Yes. And, and even if you think, no, no, no I'll, I'll skim past that, that doesn't look very interesting. That only gives you another 20 seconds for the next one. Well, yes. we asked the question, how long should one stand in front of a painting? But perhaps we could ask Celia, how long should one paint a painting? Is there a moment where you know a process is complete? Is there, is there um, an intention that, um, that impede in front row? Yes, so every painter would answer this differently. Um, I think I'm more and more getting to know what my particular energy is. And I think I, more and more, my best paintings are kind of fired off. Um, And I've had to kind of unlearn my early um, discipline of kind of boasting about how many hours I've put in painting every day. I think painters tend to like to boast about how hard they work and how many hours they do. And I think it's completely beside the point. Um, I think painters have their own energy. Well, I'm angling to ask you about The Man in the Red Coat, which takes its title from a it takes it takes it from a, a sergeant portrait and a yes. and a sitter and I, I wonder if it's as much the portrait as as the sitter is, is was the painting an inspiration the painting of the man as much as the man himself well i never know um, i have never had a moment when i've seen something or heard something or done something and thought that's a novel 
it always has to compost down. Um, so when I saw this painting, which I think had only been once shown in Europe because it had disappeared to, well, it was in the family for a long time and then it was disappeared to uh, Los Angeles. Um, and it's hung, at, I don't know if you saw the Sargent show, but it was Portrait Show 2015. And there was a very long gallery. And at the end, was this sort of life-size man in a, in a red dressing gown, day coat. wasn't really clear what the garment was. And, um, and, and there was a review of it by a woman in the Daily Mail who said, I went to that exhibition too. And as I approached him and got nearer him and looked at him, I felt myself blushing, which I thought was marvellous. Mm. Because he was, a, he was a very seductive man, very charming, very intelligent, and a great womaniser. And so even, you know, 100 years after mm. his death, he, his painted image was still having this effect. Mm. Um, it didn't have that effect on me. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then I read the sort of label at the side and it said, famous gynaecologist, did this, did that, um, and a famous seduce, a famous Don Juan or something like that. And I thought, I paused briefly, I thought, hmm, gynaecologist, Don Juan, is that a contradiction, is that a paradox? Never thought about it again. And then uh, it composts down, and about 18 months later, it comes up as a possible idea for a trio of medical people, all of whom had... Um, uh, melodramatic stroke, catastrophic deaths. Um, and then, as I looked at Dr. Potsy, I realised that there was awful lot about him and enough for a single book, you a whole book. You felt a book coming on. I felt a book coming on. And, and also, interest, it's interesting that halfway through, I got less and less interesting, interested in, in him as a seducer. I was much more interested in him as a gynaecologist, a rational man, a, uh, a scientist in an age of uh, panic, chaos and irrationality. Um, and he became a kind of hero. Uh, and also I was writing at the time of, uh, when Brexit was happening. Um, and he was absolutely an internationalist. He was a great Anglophile. And so I wrote a little afterword in which I allowed my feelings to become clear. <laughs> Celia, can I ask you about the new project on, on Gwen John, this, this correspondence with her? Where, where has this come from? Where is it going? It's coming out next year. Tell us about it. Well, I didn't think I was going to write another book at all. Um, but then I thought that actually there was quite a lot I needed to address in my own mind to try and work out and because I'd because Gwen and I are both very solitary artists and there's and there's um, a kind of shame in solitariness from the outside point of view people find it kind of um, alarming I think and I wanted to make it clear that it's a choice and that um it is not something that's been imposed on either of our natures from the kind of overshadowing presence of the, the men that we've both been involved with. And I suppose I wanted to explore also 
um, why it is that both of our lives have always been overshadowed by men in one way or another, and whether each of us, Gwen and I, are somehow culpable in our um, attitudes to men, our relation to men. So it's that's what I wanted to address. It sounds like a really powerful project. Yes, and it's interesting what you say about being solitary, mm-hmm. because people don't understand solitariness. No. Um, they think it's uh, it's the same as loneliness. Exactly. Um, yes. And yet, as the great Marianne Moore once said, the cure for loneliness is solitude, <laughs> which is absolutely brilliant. It's counterintuitive, but it's mm-hmm. Get used to being on your own, and you won't be lonely. Exactly, and it's such a freeing thing. Isn't yes, it? yes, 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 yeah. yes. And um, I mean, Proust talks about, endorses um, solitude, yes. um, and uh, sort of says he can't even be himself properly in company. And yes. Yeah. Well, I like company. I'm, I'm mm. quite a social being, but I'm, I'm well capable of spending two or three days completely by myself. Mm. Um, yes. And now I um, sort of get a bit antsy, I'm not, <laughs> not surprisingly. I know, you know, you can't perfect solitude. And anyway, you don't want to, you want to see your friends. Can, can I ask you about Elizabeth Finch? Because you started writing that just before the pandemic, I think. Was that a solitary endeavour? Were, were you writing on your own throughout that pandemic period? Um, I, well, I won't go into my personal life, but um, I, I always write on my own. I mean, I. I uh, I mentioned that I had started three months before the pandemic simply to indicate that it was it was a it was a normal Jay Barnes book rather than <laughs> something that you know oh gosh the pandemic's come I better write a book you know mm. I I could foresee that there were going to be a lot of books written by writers mm. uh, in the, during the pandemic however long it lasted and that they'd all be coming out in about eighteen months time and I think there's a great backlog the publishers have. Um, so, uh, and it has nothing to do with, it has nothing to do with the plague times. Thank God. Yes, I know. I think, I think we're going to be quite enough of those. <laughs> I have one reading suggestion, which is pandemic related. I mean, everyone went off and bought Diary of the Plague Year and, um, and La Peste by Camus. Um, there's a wonderful novel um, by William Maxwell called They Came Like Swallows. It's a very mm. short novel and it's about the... the um, Spanish flu epidemic, uh, which hit his family. It's quite autobiographical and absolutely brilliant. And, and it also tells you that 100 years ago when the Spanish flu uh, epi- epidemic was on, people reacted in exactly the same way as, mm. as, as we have been doing. You know. I, that's wonderful. We love a vintage uh, book's recommendation for our, reader, our listeners. And funny enough, it's published by Vintage. Oh, one, so. even better. <laughs> Bonus points. So, uh, what about you, Celia? Is there anything you would recommend for our listeners? Um, I, um, I've actually just been reading something that's too well-known even for me to <laughs> kind of recommend it. Do it anyway. Um, well, I, I was reading recently, I was reading Tender as the Night by um, Scott Fitzgerald, I mean, really just for self-indulgent, because there's a kind of sultry melancholy about it that um, I, I wanted to kind of relax with. But also because um, I'm quite interested in um, Dick Diver's infatuation with 
this 17-year-old Rosemary Hoyt. Um, and I've been, in my painting, I've been kind of revisiting paintings I did in my youth. I used to have this big sofa that actually Lucian gave me, which um, gradually kind of decayed, but it was so interesting, the kind of buttons in the and the the folds and the holes and the um, which I kind of used um, with the sitters, um, and so I've been painting my own versions of um, girls in rooms on on sofas, <laughs> and so I'm just trying to um, reconnect with my girlhood. Um, because I think um, even though I was going through quite a traumatic time I had a kind of um, shining confidence a kind of deep belief in myself I mean I still have a deep belief but I haven't got that kind of you know the Emma, Emma Raducanu kind of <laughs> absolute confidence that I think young women can have and I think it's interesting in the Scott Fitzgerald that this Rosemary Hoyt has that kind of shining youth, which then, towards the end of the book, you get a sense of her being somehow quite monstrous in her shining toughness. And wondering how those shining young women actually um, brave life and don't turn into monsters with their <laughs> with their confidence, but keep somehow that um, that self belief. I'd also like to add, as a sports pianist, <laughs> we're all expecting Emma Raducanu to win, you know, several majors in the next few years. The last youngest person to win major was Serena Williams, and astonishingly, she didn't win another major for three years after her first one. Oh. So, Daily Mail, don't hold <laughs> That's the more unexpected turn of our conversation, <laughs> talking about tennis. Um, but we, it's a tradition in this particular series to allow the writers to ask questions of each other. And I wonder if you had a final question for each other. Celia, I wonder if you have a question for Julian, for instance. Um, well, I was going to say, is there a difference when you write about someone you know too well to do with um, Howard Hodgkin? And... And then I was wondering whether you're freed to write about the people you know too well by their death. Mm, that's complex. Um, I've, uh, to answer the second part, I was freed to write about my wife's death by her death, but I only wrote about her death. I didn't read write about her life. It was a book of it was a book which was about death and grief rather than life and death. So it's very it's a little a section, um, deliberately so. Also there's a question of um, being impertinent and imposing on someone's life, even if they're dead, when you've loved them. Um, 
I, I don't often, I mean, in my fiction, I very rarely use uh, characters from life. I may start with a little bit of one uh, drawn from life and then develop it. I don't find it helpful to use a character who I've known in fiction because um, you're, it, all people come with limitations, you know. So, but you want them to, if they're fictional, you want them to be free, you want them to have no boundaries. Um, it was hard writing about Howard Hodgkin, um, partly because I knew that he'd be extremely sensitive to anything that I wrote, <laughs> um, and also because his art was very hard to describe. Um, but I, I thought I ought to try, and then I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased you liked the essay, because in, in a way it's the, it's the least helpful essay in the, in the book, because in the rest of them, I'm sort of trying to explain the artist as I see him or her. And, and with, with this, I'm saying, this is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> this is the problem. Here's, here's someone whose work I've met, looked at for 30 years, and I can't put it into words. Um, but of course, as, as Degas or, or Brock would say, shut up. About it. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's such a beautiful rhythm in the whole book, because... Um, one point you you quote um, Van Gogh talking about Corot's dream of pink skies just um, before he died, and then the impressionists painting these extraordinary pink skies, and then there's this wonderful reproduction of a Vuillard portrait of Bonnard where there's a the same sort of pink ceiling, and then reproduced is this extraordinary painting by Howard Hodgkin called um, Alpine Snow, which is that, again, that kind of visionary pink. Um, And it's made me long to paint a pink painting, (laughs) uh, just because there's a kind of um, that particular luminous quality of the pink, which seems to echo back to Corot's vision of pink. Yes, I, I, I mean, one of the things you, you, you discover as you learn more about art is, is the painters who were revered by other painters, mm. uh, but who seem, uh, in quotes, smaller painters than them. So, I mean, Corot was one, and Chardin was another. Yes. Uh, and, and, they, and it goes all the way through to, um, you know, Hodgkin painted uh, a picture called After Corot, and um, there's the this in Freud, Chardin versions. And so it's not always, you know, uh, Velasquez and Goya who, who are, who are, who are um, the, not mentors, but mm. the sort of examples, the yes. sort of examples that are sort of purity of purpose often mm. um, and, and artistic honour. Um, I think it's something like that. Julian, do you have a question for Celia to end? Yes, I, when you first started talking about your studio, and you, 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 you spoke as if um, you have a, a, your sitters are always put in the same place, is that right? Yes, they're always put in the same place. Is that because of the light, or is it for psychological reasons? Um, it's very much to do with the light. Um, my, my studio, um, the light is... It's a north light, and um, there's that particular quality to a north light. Um, it's somehow like a, a sealed jar that's um, never 
broken by sunlight. And it has a kind of quality, you know, that specific light in a Vermeer, um, you know, his um, sitters by the window. Um, there's such a particular way that the light washes around a form where it's coming from that northerly direction where, you know, like the that the woman reading a letter, the woman mm. in blue mm-hmm. with the map behind her. Mm-hmm. Um, the, she's, the whole of the wall space around her is, is washed and tinged with the blue from her dress. And, and I think the corner of my studio acts in the same way, um, making the light kind of liquid. I think we ought not to detain you any longer and let you go back to the studio and you, Julian, to your very messy, slightly sloped desk. Thank you, Celia Paul and Julian Barnes. And thank you for listening to Cape in Conversation on the Vintage Books podcast with me, Shahid Abari. You'll find details of Celia and Julian's latest books in the show notes, as well as my book, Dressed, The Secret Life of Clothes, which is part of Cape's non-fiction list. If you'd like to learn more about the storied history of Jonathan Cape publishing, you'll find a great article in the bookseller that tells you just that. We'd love to hear what you thought of this episode, and in fact, the entire series. You can leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts or get in touch at Vintage Books on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. This was the final episode of Cape in Conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I hope it's been as illuminating and enjoyable for you as it has been for me, talking with writers about their craft. We've been on a wild ride with Atasha Moshveg and Rachel Kushner, asked what it means to be unrooted with Salman Rushdie and Katie Kitamura, explored ideas of family and parenthood with Anne Enright and Alison Bechtel, and asked how language and painting meet with Julian Barnes and Celia Paul. If you've missed any of the series, do go back and listen. You'll find all the Cape and Conversation episodes on the Vintage Books podcast feed. It's a great way to celebrate 100 years of the vintage imprint of Jonathan Cape. Goodbye. <laughs>